This episode contains details that some may find disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. It's a sad and discouraging reality that some missing people just won't be found. It's even more frustrating when clues exist that may point to some answers, and the main suspect decides to hint at answers and then snatch them back just as quickly. This is what happened with the cases of three Charlotte women, Priscilla Blevins, Denise Porch, and Sandy Cornett. These women went missing in the 1970s and 1980s, during a time when a very dangerous and unstable man was terrorizing victims in the Carolinas. His name was Larry Jean Bell. There are a number of missing persons cases right here in the Carolinas, and some have received more media attention than others. These are the stories that tug at our heartstrings, make us pray it never happens to anyone in our families, and wonder if there is still any way to find closure for these missing persons and their loved ones. I'm Renee Robertson. Please join me for Missing in the Carolinas. Episode number 10, The Unconfirmed Victims of Larry Jean Bell. Bell is most well-known for the kidnappings and murders of Sherry Faye Smith and Deborah Mae Helmick that took place in South Carolina in the mid-1980s. I'll share more about these crimes later on in this podcast, but I'll first say that Larry Jean Bell is no longer with us. He was executed in South Carolina in 1996. Over the years, there has been much speculation about whether or not Smith and Helmick were his only victims. Bell had ties to Charlotte in the late 1970s and early 1980s, around the time that three other young women went missing. The first woman I'd like to talk about is Priscilla Blevins. She was last seen by her roommate on July 7, 1975, on Tyvola Road in Charlotte near her home. She was really smart. She was the pretty one in the family. Priscilla Blevins' story is one that stays with you, mainly because there's no end. There are personal mementos. It's called an ID bracelet. Childhood pictures, dental records, even postcards Priscilla wrote her sister. But this is all there is. One manila folder is all that's left. In July of 1975, Priscilla walked out of her apartment on Tybola Road. As her sister, Kathy Howe, points out, the apartments no longer exist. The area is now a school parking lot. She was last seen by her roommate, and then my parents were contacted. Priscilla was a 27-year-old graduate of Wake Forest University in Winston-Salem, who had also spent some time teaching in South America. Although she had recently quit her job at Ivy's department store, she had aspirations of becoming a translator for the United Nations. Police originally thought that maybe she had left on her own, but she was close with her family, and they didn't think she had any reason to leave town without telling anyone. They went years without knowing anything about what had happened to Priscilla. According to a news report that ran on WBTV, in the year 2000, a detective named Lee Tuttle received Priscilla's case file, where he was discouraged by how little information there was to go on. The apartments Priscilla had lived in had been torn down and replaced with an elementary school. In 2009, he met with Priscilla's sister, Kathy Blevins Howe, in Winston-Salem, where she was living. He took a DNA swab from the inside of her cheek 
because he wanted to put it in the FBI's National DNA Database. Three years later, in October 2012, Kathy finally received word that Priscilla was no longer alive. Her remains had been discovered in 1985 on the other side of a guardrail on I-40 in Haywood County in North Carolina, which is about two and a half hours from Charlotte. Her bones had been stored at the North Carolina Medical Examiner's Office in Chapel Hill since their discovery, until DNA from those bones were matched to Kathy's DNA. Although Priscilla's family was able to finally lay her remains to rest, there are still many unanswered questions. How did she get from Charlotte to Haywood County? How did she die? How long had her remains been there? The case is still open, and Priscilla's family is hoping to receive more answers one day. Up next is the puzzling disappearance of Denise Porch. Denise's case is one of the oldest missing persons cases in Charlotte. She was a 21-year-old newlywed at the time of her disappearance. She lived with her husband at the Yorktown Apartments off Tyvola Road. Denise worked as a resident manager for the apartments, and she was responsible for showing available units to prospective renters. On July 31, 1975, her husband Rodney returned home from work around 8 p.m. Denise had left a note on the door that she was showing an apartment, but it looked like she had been gone for a few hours at that point. The TV was left on, and her purse and car keys were still in the apartment. There were no signs of a struggle inside. Her car was outside in the parking lot. Witnesses reported seeing Denise that afternoon showing a man around the apartment complex. Rodney was never considered a suspect in his wife's disappearance. Without ever receiving any answers as to what happened to Denise, her family had her declared dead in 1982. On November 18, 1984, a young woman named Sandy Cornett vanished from her home in Charlotte. Sandy was a 26-year-old insurance adjuster and part-time model. She had dinner with her fiancé around 6.30 p.m. that evening, and then he left to drive back to Greenville, South Carolina, where he was living at the time. A few hours later, after he had returned home, he called Sandy's house and let the phone ring once. That was their signal that he had made it home, and she would call him back later when the long-distance rates were lower. She never called, but the fiancé assumed she must have fallen asleep and didn't worry about it. When he tried to call her at work the next day, he discovered she hadn't made it into the office and grew worried. He contacted a neighbor of Sandy's who had a spare key to the house. At first, the neighbor didn't note anything unusual other than the TV had been left on. But when she took a look inside Sandy's bedroom, she found the young woman's purse had been dumped out onto the bed. Sandy's house keys, driver's license, and checkbook were also there. Once Sandy's parents had a chance to look around the house and tell police what they thought was missing, they listed three items. Sandy's ATM card, a blue jogging suit that she often wore around the house, and her answering machine. Police searched the wooded areas around Sandy's neighborhood but could find no signs of where the young woman had gone. Investigators heard from Sandy's bank, as there had been money taken out of her account a few days after she went missing. Employees reported seeing a man at the ATM around the same time the transactions had been recorded, and also a woman using the card. A woman also called the bank asking what the balance was on the account. She asked if she could transfer money out of the account, but employees suspected it wasn't Sandy on the phone and told her that wasn't possible. The woman hung up and did not call back. 
Sandy's fiancé was also questioned in this case and eliminated as a suspect, but she was never found. Let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. By day, I work as a journalist and magazine editor, but I also enjoy creative writing and entering writing contests. If you like writing flash fiction, you should check out the contests over at WOW Women on Writing. This specific contest will have 20 winners and more than $1,350 in cash prizes. First place wins $400. WOW allows a maximum of 300 stories. You can also purchase a critique to get more feedback on your writing. Learn more at wow-womenonwriting.com and click on the contest tab. Let's get back to our story. So who exactly was Larry Jean Bell? This is pretty tough to talk about given the nature of his crimes. I first heard about this case several months ago when I was watching an episode of Forensic Files. Bell abducted 17-year-old Sherry Faye Smith on the afternoon of May 31, 1985. Sherry was just two days away from graduating from high school in the small town of Lexington, South Carolina. She had spent the afternoon with classmates at nearby Lake Murray. She was wearing a bathing suit underneath a pair of shorts and a tank top. She arrived home around 3.30 p.m. that afternoon and stopped at the end of the driveway to check the mail, barefoot and leaving her car running. The mailbox was about 750 feet away from the Smith home. Sherry's mother looked out the window, saw Sherry's car idling, and told her husband that their daughter was home. When Sherry didn't make it to the house within a few minutes, her father went down the driveway to look for her. He was concerned with what he found. Sherry's car was still running, the driver's side door was open, and her purse, towel, and shoes were lying on the passenger seat. Sherry had a rare form of diabetes and required daily medication. It had been left behind in her purse. She was nowhere to be found. Her parents immediately called the police because they knew something was seriously wrong. Witnesses came forward and said they remembered driving past the Smith home and seeing Sherry's car idling at the mailbox. They noticed another car driving towards them, a 1982 or 1984 Oldsmobile Cutlass, reddish purple in color, with the man who appeared to be in his mid-30s driving. When they came back down the road about 10 minutes later, Sherry's car was still in the same location, but they didn't see her or the other car. Sherry missed her high school graduation that Sunday, and her family was heartbroken. In the early morning hours of Monday, they received a call at their home from a man claiming to have Sherry. Among other things, he told them what Sherry was wearing when she went missing, and that a letter would be arriving from their daughter. He did not make a ransom demand. Investigators intercepted the letter at the post office around 7 a.m. that morning. Sherry's father was brought in to read the letter. It was written on a yellow legal paper with blue lines and was in a legal-sized white envelope containing a stamp with a mallard duck on it. The letter was dated June 1, 1985, 3.10 a.m., and had the words, Last Will and Testament, across the top. There was no doubt it was Sherry's handwriting. The letter is a difficult one to read, so I'm not going to read all of it here. Sherry's deep faith came through in the letter, as she told her family how much she loved them and that she knew she was going to be with her Lord. She wrote the words, God is love, in the margins, and said, I know y'all love me, 
and will miss me very much. But if y'all stick together like we always did, y'all can do it. Please do not become hard or upset. Everything works out for the good for those that love the Lord. She also wrote the words, casket closed, in the letter. Larry Jean Bell continued to call the Smith home and kept requesting to talk to Sherry's older sister, Dawn. He tormented the family by telling them about Sherry, stating that they had become one soul, but dodging the question of whether Sherry was still alive or if she was doing okay without her medication. The calls were traced to various payphones around town. Finally, on June 5, 1985, he made one last call with the address of where Sherry's body could be found. It was located in nearby Saluda County behind a Masonic Lodge. She had likely been killed within 12 hours of her abduction. At this point, the family still had no idea who Sherry's kidnapper was. He continued to call their home and speak with Dawn, and he also made a call to a local TV reporter. He seemed to enjoy tormenting the family, and he rambled on about many different things in the calls, saying Sherry had the fear of God in her when she went missing, and that was how he had abducted her. Just a few weeks later, on June 14th, nine-year-old Deborah May Helmick was playing outside of her home with her three-year-old little brother at the Shiloh Mobile Home Park in Richland County. Her mother was at work, and her father had just returned from work after getting a ride home with a friend around 4 p.m. He went inside to change his clothes, leaving both children outside to play in the yard. Because it was still stifling hot outside, the air conditioner was running inside the home. A few doors down, neighbor Ricky Morgan didn't have his air conditioner running and was in the kitchen when he saw a silver car slowly pull past his mobile home, turn around, and make its way back down the road. He described it as a silver sedan with red racing stripes. Before he could make sense of what was happening, a man jumped out of the car, grabbed little Deborah from behind, and took off running back towards his car. Morgan went running out into the yard at the same time Deborah's father and his friend who had driven him home came outside. They had heard screaming and were worried. They found Deborah's three-year-old brother hiding in some nearby bushes, frightened that the man who had snatched his sister would come back for him. The local police were instantly worried that the same man who had abducted Sherry had also taken Deborah because they knew what the kidnapper was capable of. Investigators quickly worked with Ricky Morgan to put together a composite sketch of the suspect. He described a white male in his mid-30s with brown hair and a close-cropped beard and mustache, approximately 5 foot 9, around 215 pounds with a slight beer belly. Eight days later, as they were still mourning the loss of their daughter, Sherry Faye Smith's family received another early morning call. The operator said it was a collect call from Sherry Faye Smith, and her sister Dawn accepted the charges. Sherry's killer made small talk, telling Dawn that God wanted her to join Sherry, and it would be soon. Then he asked if she had heard about the kidnapping of Deborah May Helmick, telling her to write down the location of where police could find her body. Nine-year-old 
Deborah May Helmick was found in the exact location the caller had said she was, in a wooded area on a dirt road in Gilbert, South Carolina. Like Sherry, her body had been there for several days and the heat had taken a toll on the little girl's remains. She was identified a few days later by dental records. At the same time, police had been frantically searching for Deborah. The South Carolina Law Enforcement Division, or SLED, had been working to process their most promising evidence, Sherry Faye Smith's last will and testament letter. Noting that there were impressions of handwriting left on the paper, forensics experts could tell someone had written other notes on the same legal pad as Sherry's letter. They processed the letter on an electrostatic detection apparatus, an instrument that can help develop indented writings with paper products. Investigators were able to pinpoint a phone number from those indentations that could be traced to a residence in Huntsville, Alabama. Further tracing determined the Alabama number had been called from a phone number in Saluda, South Carolina. When investigators called the Alabama number, the man who answered told them his parents lived in Saluda. Ellis and Sharon Shepard then received a visit from law enforcement. The couple explained that they traveled frequently and didn't like to leave their home unattended when they were gone. They used a house sitter named Larry Jean Bell, who also worked for them as an electrician. When they described his appearance, it almost exactly matched the description of Deborah May Helmick's kidnapper. The Shepherds had also been away from their home at the same time Sherry and Deborah were abducted. When played audio from the calls the kidnapper had made to the Smith home, they positively identified Bell's voice. They were horrified. He was arrested on June 27, 1985. Bell was eventually tried for both murders, and both his trials had to receive change of venues because of the extensive media coverage of the murders. He was found guilty of Sherry Faye Smith's kidnapping and murder on February 27, 1986. The jury deliberated for less than three hours before finding him guilty. He was convicted of Deborah May Helmick's kidnapping and murder on April 2, 1987. Again, the jury only deliberated for a little over an hour. He was executed by electric chair on October 4, 1996. Now I'd like to go back to the missing women in Charlotte and why some people think they may be connected to Bell. Priscilla Blevins is one of the women people suspect could have been a victim of Bell's. He was living not far from where she went missing on Tavola Road in Charlotte. Because we know Bell basically snatched Sherry Faye Smith and Deborah May Helmick from their driveways, he is capable of coercing a woman into his car. Unfortunately, there is no other evidence right now that can conclusively tie Bell to this murder. But I do believe investigators will solve it one day. They have evidence collected from the scene where Priscilla's body was left outside of Asheville. The connection with Denise Porch is also slight, but it is there. Like Priscilla Blevins, it was determined that Bell lived near the Yorktown apartments at the same time Denise Porch went missing in 1975. There were witness reports that the man she had been seen with that afternoon was a dark-haired man in his 20s or 30s who drove a foreign car. According to the book Charlotte True Crime Stories, a suspect matching that same description was eventually arrested in Greensboro, North Carolina, and convicted on rape charges. No connection has been made to Denise's disappearance, but he could be another suspect. 
Sandy Cornett is the victim that seems most closely tied to Larry Jean Bell. After he was arrested in July 1985, he told investigators that they needed to make arrangements for officials from Charlotte to pay him a visit. He said, I want to tell them some things about a missing girl named Sandy. Sandy was the young insurance adjuster who went missing in November of 1984. According to the book Murder in the Midlands, 28 Days of Terror, written by forensic photographer Rita Schuller, Bell went on to say, On Monday, God is going to reveal to me where Sandy Cornett's body is. He also talked about two other young women in North Carolina who had gone missing, but did not name any names. Bell also lived near Sandy Cornett at the time she went missing. He was working as an electrician, and he had met Sandy once when he attended a birthday party for one of Sandy's friends with co-workers from Eastern Airlines in Charlotte. Though he rambled on to investigators about Sandy, often referring to himself in third person, which was common for him, he never did give them any other details. I'm not sure if Bell can be tied to the disappearances of Denise Porch or Priscilla Blevins. I do think it's likely that he may have kidnapped Sandy Cornett, since they had met before and he could have used that as a ruse to get into her home after her fiancé had left. Investigators also determined Bell had tried to kidnap a woman at a shopping center in Rock Hill, South Carolina in 1975, but she screamed and was able to get away. He also attacked a female student from the University of South Carolina and was sentenced to five years for that crime. He only served two. He was also charged with making harassing phone calls to a woman in 1979. Also, in 1980, a 17-year-old young woman named Beth Marie Hagen was found in Mint Hill, North Carolina, which is outside of Charlotte. She had been strangled with an electrical cord and left in the woods. Bell lived not far from the area where she was found at the time. I couldn't find any confirmation that her case was ever solved. Because Bell traveled back and forth between Charlotte and South Carolina in the mid-1970s and 1980s, I find it likely that Sherry Faye Smith and Deborah May Helmick were not the only murder victims tied to him. With his background as an electrician, he could have used that knowledge to easily gain access to people's homes or strike up conversations with people. Unfortunately, he remained a coward up to the day of his execution leaving families with many unanswered questions and proclaiming himself to be Jesus Christ right up into his death. This brings us to the conclusion of episode 10. If you enjoyed this episode, please do me a favor and give it a five-star rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you want to visit my blog and read more about true crime cases from all over the country, including the ones featured here, visit missinginthecarolinas.com. And don't forget to check out our sponsor, WOW Women on Writing, and the great programs and writing contests they have to support writers at wow-womenonwriting.com. Cover art for this podcast was designed by Macintosh Multimedia. All episodes are researched and written by me, Renee Robertson, with sound editing provided by Mia Robertson. <laughs>